Good morning, church. Today's scripture is found in Mark 16, 1 to 8. Please stand for the reading of the word. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. Hey, good morning, church. Uh, so glad you're here with us this morning. My name is Stephen Cockrath. I'm the pastor here. And um, yeah, great to celebrate the season of Advent with you, uh, to celebrate Christmas, and to, to finish the Gospel of Mark uh, together as a church. Uh, it's, it's an amazing uh, kind of journey, and looking forward to um, kind of wrapping this up today. So um, hey, uh, maybe some of you are here this morning, and you would consider yourself somewhat of a skeptic. Uh, I won't make you raise your hand, uh, but maybe that's you. Maybe that's kind of how you see the world, how you see conversations, or when people you know, talk big or go fishing and kind of have their stories. You know what I mean? And it's like you, you kind of see yourself that way. You're skeptical about something. You're not just sure about that evidence. And I think there's kind of two uh, views, two kinds of uh, skepticism in some ways. The first kind of skepticism is linked to uncertainty. And I think uh, for some of us, it's it's kind of a probably a healthy type of, hey, let's wait and see how this works out. You're not sure about the facts. You're not sure um, about the information. Maybe it doesn't seem realistic. So uh, for example, imagine that I told you that this past week, my grandmother, um, uh, her and I went skydiving. Okay, so there's kind of a little bit of an initial sense of like, oh, re really? Okay, that's, that's interesting. You know, you're not sure about that? You look at me and say, that's, that really happened, huh? Yeah, yeah, she wanted to go. She was turning 95, and she <laughs> wanted to um, go. It's been something that she's always wanted to do. And you'd be like, really? That, that really happened, huh? And some of you at that point might think that, you know, I'm pulling your leg. Some of you might believe me, but then I pull up my phone and I show you pictures and I show you video. And I'm like, this is my grandma. She's jumping out of a plane. She's skydiving. And, and here you go. And at that point, most of you would probably be like, okay, I can get on board with this. Like he, he, has, he has a story. He has kind of this claim, but it's also backed up by, by some truth. So it's skepticism, but it would lead to belief in a very kind of reasonable way. I mean, old people can do things, right? I mean, he has pictures. So there's that type of uh, skeptic. Another type of skeptic would be, would be a little bit harder to engage with because some people, as, as you know, some people simply just will not believe no matter what, right? Their, their mind is made up. 
They will not be influenced by the facts, no matter how compelling they are. So a person in that second category would not be convinced, no matter what I said, that my grandmother and I went skydiving, they would look at the pictures, and they'd be like, well, that was probably Photoshopped, or uh, some kind of app that you put this old lady through, and, and there's no way this person went skydiving. And um, even if maybe you saw my grandma uh, jump out of a plane, you'd be like, well, there's probably a reason why this is not true. So as we kind of walk through Mark, as we kind of walk through this last sermon through Mark, I just want to say this when it comes to Mark specifically, but also the Christian faith in general, that skeptics are welcome. Skeptics are welcome here at church. They're welcome in conversations. We want you to be a part of a community that is not afraid of questions and there's a lot of crazy stuff in the Bible, I realize that. There's a lot of things that don't make sense, don't connect in, in, in many ways, but there's room for questions. There's room for skeptics here. You may have, uh, you, you may especially, if you are the first type of skeptic I talked about, you have questions, you're, you're uncertain about the evidence, but God has been working in your heart over time, maybe over the last year, maybe over the last few years, and you've seen um, a lot of evidence amount to, hey, there is a God, he, he, he doesn't want to have a relationship with me. He, he knows who I am. These type of big questions uh, in life are being answered slowly but surely. And this morning, as we finish up the Gospel of Mark, um, we're going to do that. And in doing so, walk through the single greatest event that's ever happened in the world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And um, I mentioned this last week. It's ironic. We're in Christmas. It's Advent. We're at the end of the story, as Katie mentioned. But we just happen to be here in terms of our... Uh, our, our kind of preaching calendar. And so we're going to finish this thing right here in December in the middle of Advent. We'll jump in. That's something more Christmasy next, next week. But um, we're going to finish this. But I also want to give you some confidence as, I, as we walk away from Mark here, that you can trust this book, that, that you see in, in my Bible and likely yours as well. Mark 16 includes, from a, a literary standpoint, kind of a strange ending in Scripture. You, you see this kind of this, this heading that we'll talk about in, in a little bit, there's this long section at the end that Mark actually did not write. And all the translations of the Bible, it's presented in the King James Version, for example, as Scripture. So um, if you're even at least a little bit skeptical, uh, it kind of makes you ask, well, how do I know if any of this is true, if they have kind of folks adding stuff to the end? What is that all about? Here's the deal. Mark, Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, scholars, all scholars across the board believe that Mark wrote those words. And it's, it's within kind of the the same um, uh, characteristic of how that looks for the rest of, of Mark. But the presence of this ending makes me feel like we need to take some time to unpack and give some uh, just confidence in trusting God's word, that if you're holding a modern translation of scripture, whether it's the ESV, or the NIV, or the NASB, or, or even the CSB, you should have great confidence in knowing that these translations are an accurate copy of God's word. And so in some ways, I want to address skeptics this morning in more, more ways than one as we wrap up Mark, as we talk about the resurrection, as we talk about scripture itself. Because I, I believe that in many ways, uh, skepticism, an unhealthy skepticism, can honestly be one of those hurdles for many believers who want to take the next step of faith. And I do want to help you in your confidence this morning. So let's turn to Mark 16. Uh, maybe you weren't here last week. Let's catch up. Last Sunday was essentially Good Friday for us. Again, I know the church calendar is all kind of upside down. But last, last week we saw that Jesus was crucified. Um, he was forsaken by God. He, was, he, he proved that he was different than anybody else who had ever lived in history. And he was beloved by many people. And through his death, we see the work that he does 
for us for our sin on the cross. And that a love and affection he received from his followers is kind of where we pick up this morning uh, a bit. I mentioned this last week, but many of Christ's followers are women in his ministry. And the thing you need to realize that can go over our heads sometimes culturally is that Jesus had many women followers. They, that Jesus valued women the way uh, that was very countercultural to the time, especially in that kind of near East, uh, ancient Near Eastern culture. But these women continue to be a, a big part of the resurrection story here in Mark's Christine, and they also serve as kind of a first archetype of a skeptic. So four points uh, this morning. Number one, I think when it comes to the resurrection, when it comes to sometimes our faith, we can be slow to trust. That's point number one, slow to trust. And I want to read verse one and uh, unpack that a little bit. Starting in verse one, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on in the first week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. It says in verse one, by the way, that when the Sabbath had passed, that's something I just want to start with right there. So the Jewish Sabbath lasted from Friday evening to Saturday evening. That was kind of the, the, the length of time, which, which means that stuff around town was closed during that time. Stores were closed. It's not really a relatable modern concept, to be honest. I, I realize that. That's not how our world works anymore. You can get you know, one-day prime shipping now, like kind of immediately. And it's, it's kind of amazing how fast and how much access we have. Um, the, modern, the only modern equivalent I can think of actually is that time where, you know, it's Sunday and you feel like chicken and you show up at Chick-fil-A and you're like, oh yeah, it's closed on Sundays. And so there's, there's that kind of, like that's all we have to deal with in our modern culture, right? As far as like access. It's pretty amazing how good we have it. But the followers of Jesus, this moment um, is painted by, is framed by the Sabbath. And the moment that the Sabbath is over, stores open up Saturday evening, the women go out to buy spices. And they have this intention, this very sweet, loving intention to, to anoint Christ's body. Because uh, the way he died, as we know, the, the way that he was tortured and killed at the end, um, especially with that in mind, this was one of the ways they could love uh, their friend, Jesus. And so they're being very selfless and courageous in their weekend plans. Maybe some of you guys volunteered over the weekend. This is a big deal, right? Like they, they showed, their, showed up with love for their friend. Jesus was crucified. He was labeled a traitor. He was labeled a heretic and a lawbreaker. And so even to be associated with, with a guy like this, the women push past the controversy and they risk being judged uh, by loving Jesus in this way. So uh, maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, what's the big deal? With that, well, remember, as far as they know, uh, he's dead. And it's been more than 24 hours. And so, you know, there's climate issues, there's body decom uh, decomposing kind of issues. And so what they're about to do is no picnic. It's not a fun um, uh, kind of activity. And we read in verse 3, kind of this funny moment along the way. Um, they have this moment. It's like the spice selection was on point. I got everything on my list. A few minutes go by. And they're walking, and they're walking, and they're like, so when we get there, how are we going to get in there and move a stone? 
And I, I love that. Mark points out it's, it's a very large stone. It's so relatable. How often do we have like, all the details in place and we forget the one most important detail, right? How many times do we go to Target, buy all the stuff we need, we get to the checkout, and we don't have our wallet, right? It's like that's the one thing I need to have get all these things. And, and so there's, uh, there's this, this moment where the women, they have the spices, but they fail to think about how do we get inside the tomb? Well, fortunately, as we see in verse 4, the stone had already been rolled back. The stone was already opened up, and it's a surprise to them because it turns out they actually don't need the spices at all. They don't need any of the things that they brought because the body's gone. Mark alone, in his gospel, records three specific times when Jesus says, I will die, but on the third day I will rise again. Mark has said this over and over again. And these women, these followers, are slow to trust, and they have incredible intentions. But they've set aside their weekend plans. They bought spices. They planned a hike, right, to the cave where his body was laid. But you begin to see they were skeptics in a way. They defaulted to what made sense in their mind. They saw Jesus die on the cross. They saw him be buried in this tomb. They heard the story about Joseph of Arimathea. They, they realized, you know, dead people don't come back from the dead. And maybe they heard Jesus speak of resurrection. They were like, maybe he just had some, you know, had a lot of moxie that day. He had a lot of uh, courage that day. He started talking big and, and they were slow to trust. And I, I just want to I want to press into this a little bit because I think you and I can be the same way, that we can protect our own hearts against hoping for great things at times. Um, one of the most poignant lines from Lord of the Rings, uh, the two towers, is when Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas are trying to find their hobbit friends. Uh, you remember that scene where they're kind of just running, right? And the poor little... Uh, um, uh, Gimli, he's, he's like me in the story. He'd be running with short legs, trying to catch up, right? And he's out of breath. And they've been tracking these guys for days. And there's these creatures called orcs that have them hostage. They get close to finding them. A man named, I think it's Aomer. I'm sorry if any of the Lord of the Rings guys are, uh, he's riding a horse. And he says, hey, I saw them the day before, but cautions their optimism. And he says, do not trust the hope it is forsaken in these lands. I, I, I always like that line. Do not trust the hope. It's forsaken in these lands. And it just paints this bleak picture of it's risky to hope, right? It's, it's risky to put your faith into something when you're not sure if it's going to work out. And some of you this morning have a hard time with, with hope. It's easier just to expect things to not work out. And I have to be honest, I can be exactly like this in, in many ways. I don't want to be disappointed, Right? Like, I don't want to be excited for no reason at all. I, I, too, can be slow to trust. And I think this is true of us during Christmas. We, we, we love Jesus. We, we like the things that happen in this holiday. We like to, like, like to serve him. We make our plans, and we even show up with these great intentions. But we forget the most important thing, to take him at his word. And I get it. Jesus said some kind of crazy things. He said outlandish things. He's, he said, hey, when it comes to your possessions... Uh, you should have a different mindset. When he speaks to your anxieties, he speaks to your heart in crazy ways. And Jesus says this on the third day, I will rise. Well, okay, Jesus, uh, sounds hopeful, but I've learned to not trust the hope. Does this describe you this morning? Are you slow to trust God? Maybe like these women at the empty tomb, you're scared. And just like these women, God is extending uh, to you an invitation to believe. 
So that's, uh, that brings us to point number two. Number two is this, belief over fear. Belief over fear. This is the invitation to all of us. Verse five says this, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, uh, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. The wording here is interesting. Um, Mark is, is certainly understanding the situation, uh, but who is this young man in, in white? Well, we know from Matthew and John that this is an angel of the Lord. And Luke and John say that he wasn't actually alone, that there were actually two other guys as well. This is pretty momentous. We uh, don't often run into angels very often. Um, I feel like in our society, especially if we talk about angels too much, you start to get kind of some sideways glances, right? It's like, it's like just keep that to yourself, right? You and your, your angel talk, right? Um, in the Bible, apparently it happened more often than maybe, maybe it happens this often nowadays. I don't know, but it's pretty, pretty crazy. The first thing, though, you usually see when there is an interaction with an angel the first thing that they say is, don't be afraid. And um, you know, maybe you've studied this before, maybe you've heard this before, but the, the thinking there is they have to say that immediately because these angels are incredibly intimidating. They're, they're powerful looking, they're glorious looking, they incite some type of awe in some ways. And this is the case in Mark 16 because this, this understated description of this is young man in white shows up and verse 5 says the women were alarmed. Again, these women are courageous women. They're strong women. And so it's not just like this kind of weird uh, take on, well, yeah, because they were women. They were No, this was probably a scary situation. This is a, a fearful situation. And from the text, uh, but also for our lives spiritually, our, our, our beliefs tend to be a safety blanket for us. And with these women showing up, they're thinking about tending to the body of their Lord, and they encounter an empty grave and no, bar, no body. And it's alarming, to say the least. And then this angel, his training kicks in, right? Page 17 of the angel handbook. I don't know. When greeting a human, human, put them at ease, right? And so the first thing out of his mouth, don't be alarmed. But what's next is most important part. It's an invitation to set aside fear and pick up belief instead. The angel says, hey, you're looking for Jesus, that guy from Nazareth, the guy who was crucified. And this detail is important because, you know, the angel is assuring these women who are probably in shock that you are at the right place, that that guy that you know was here. You're not in the wrong tomb. We're talking about the same Jesus, the same Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. And then you see some of the most amazing words in all scripture. He has risen. He has risen. He's not here. He has risen. And he then invites them into belief in verse 6. He says this. He says, see. Right? See for yourself. Um, again, I, I understand it's scary to encounter things that we don't understand. And I'm sure this is how these women feel at the tomb. Nothing has gone the way that they thought this Easter morning. And to be honest, there's still some questions to be answered. It applies to, this, to these women, but it applies to us too. Because for many of us, and maybe your mind goes here too, an empty tomb is not the, the smoking gun of a resurrection. 
Just because there's an empty tomb doesn't mean that there was a resurrection. An empty tomb can mean a lot of things. Let's address a few of these things that uh, you maybe have thought about or read about before. Right from the start, some people accused uh, Christ's followers of stealing the body. That was one of the things that was kind of coming around from a lot of folks. Some people said, well, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross at all. They just kind of, he was really hurt and injured and on the brink of death, and they threw him in the grave, and, you know, he had, he had three days to rest and kind of recuperate. It sounds ridiculous, but then he came out, right, and he appeared to be resurrected from the dead. There are many good answers, by the way, to debunk these theories, but let's take our cue from the angel himself. Because the angel doesn't just say, we told you so, you should have listened. Uh, No, he says to the women, and I believe to us, come and see. The angel invites us in to look for ourselves. And this morning, if you are here and you are not a believer, uh, if you just happen to be here, if you're catching the end of Mark with us, and you're not sold on this stuff, I I get it. Um, This is a process and it takes faith that God gives us for our eyes to be open to this truth. And I, I pray that that would happen for you. But at the very least, as you're considering what this means for your life, if, if this was true, if Jesus was possibly who he said he was, and if he possibly died on the cross, and if the resurrection possibly happened, don't you think the implications of those possi- possibilities merit your attention and your investigation? I'll answer that for you. Yes, they do. And so come with your questions. Um, Come with your fear and doubts and realize that if you come to the same conclusion that many of us in this room have come to, this is the most impactful news that you will ever hear. That Jesus died and he rose from the grave. Oh, what an amazing truth. And some of us are slow to trust And despite our fear, we are invited to believe, and especially those of us who have been failures in our life, who are in need of grace. And that's that's point three as we kind of march on here. Number three, grace for sinners. Grace for sinners. Verse seven says this, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. This is one of my favorite verses in scripture. It's a very simple verse. It's descriptive. It's not very fancy, but let's first talk about the spiritual responsibility to share the good news that we believe. I want to talk to you Christians in the room for a minute. Um, and, and it starts with the women of the tomb. It was this linear set of instructions. He has risen. He's not here. And if you believe this, go share the news. It's pretty awesome how clear our marching orders for evangelism are. As believers, sometimes we kind of uh, convolute it. Sometimes we complicate it in many ways. And I'll, I'll quickly just point out that God's agenda transcends cultural norms. Um, and it's amazing that this angel, um, he, he knows that in the first century, women were not considered viable witnesses in court. People would not believe the word of a woman at this time. It's totally wrong. It's totally sexist. But it was the reality at that time. And God doesn't give a rip at all. He's like, hey, uh, ladies, you're here. Please share this information. Um, He he doesn't doesn't care kind of about the cultural norms in many ways. And and he says, look, this is is a really important set of news for us to share. And this really makes the strong case that the story is true because it was made up 
it would be way less problematic to have the man be the bearer of this news. And it's the women who are chosen to hear the news first. And the angel tells them to pass it along to the disciples in Galilee. Now, to realize the weight of this passing along to the disciples, we have to remember where we last left these men. Each of these guys, in their own way, have failed Jesus. Some of them in kind of just subtle, following the crowd kind of ways. Some of them, like in, in big ways, have, have really failed Christ up close and personal. The, the women are looking on in a distance, but the guys scattered when the crucifixion happened. These guys are probably depressed. They're, they're probably back home. They're devastated, right? I can just kind of imagine them at 3 p.m., like sitting at the counter, eating cereal kind of things. So like, they're just like trying to get through the day, right? And, and right before the cross, Jesus looks at Peter straight in the eye and says, hey, Peter, even you, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no way will that happen. But as we know, it's exactly what he does. Peter realizes it in the court uh, where Jesus is, is being held um, in, on trial, and it breaks him. He runs away weeping. Now, I don't know how you feel about Peter, how you would feel about him. Maybe some of you would sympathize with him. Maybe some of you would hold resentment to him. I kind of feel like that's where most people are nowadays in culture. Like, hey, there's not a lot of grace. If you turn your back on a friend, uh, you're, kind of, you're kind of like off the list, right? Um, and Peter is firmly in this camp. But that is not the message of the gospel. The gospel message is one not of condemnation. It's not a message that requires you to get your stuff together and be perfect. It's a message of grace. And it's a message, fortunately for Peter and for us, of second and third and fourth and so on chances. This is why the angel said specifically, take the message, tell the disciples, and by the way, make sure that Peter hears this too. What a powerful idea. This is grace for sinners. Sinners like Peter and sinners like you and I. Think of how this message was shared, right? Uh, the receiving of this message, the joy in the room when the disciples find out that Christ is alive. Tears of joy across the board, and then Peter hears it, and he has some extreme mixed emotions, right? And God knows this. God makes room and makes a special invitation of grace to Peter. Make sure Peter knows he's welcome. Make sure Peter knows this is good news for him too. Some of you this morning are here and you have a lot of stuff that you're not proud of in your life. Um, you failed in great ways. You're maybe in the season of failure right now. And if that's you, I want you to know the gospel is for you. This good news of Jesus dying and rising from the grave is good news for all of us who are, are sinful, who do not have our lives together. Christ did not come to this earth and die on a cross because we were such stellar examples of humility and awesomeness. That's not why he came. He came because we needed him. And through Peter, he shows us what grace looks like. And so put your name in there, guys, if you need to. Um, and write your name in the Bible if you want to. Go and tell his disciples and tell Peter. Put your name in there. He, he's going before you to Galilee. The gospel's for you. I want to end number four with the end and the aim of, of Mark. Number four, the end and the aim of Mark. This leads us to verse eight. 
and understanding kind of how this book ends. Now, if you have a modern translation of the Bible, I mentioned this at the beginning, you're looking kind of right there, you see this little bracketed point uh, that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Okay, so this is, uh, this is their way of saying, we don't know if Mark wrote this. In fact, we're probably kind of sure that Mark didn't write this. Um, if you have an old translation, as I mentioned, King, King James Version, there's no such mention. It goes from verse 8 to verse 9. It just kind of continues. It's all scripture. So again, if you are a skeptic, if you're kind of a little bit like, if you're reading the Bible through that lens, maybe this feels a little strange. And I, I want to just talk about God's word in terms of accuracy a little bit this morning. And I want you just to know simply, I'm not going to get into all the apologetics of it. There's, there's maybe another sermon for that or a book that we can talk through uh, in the future. But if you have a modern translation of God's word, it is over 99% accurate of what the original writers wrote. And that's a huge deal. And that 1% uh, really comes down to a lot of things like punctuation or grammar issues. And so I, I love that it includes this kind of caveat. Some of these earliest manuscripts are not included. Uh, and I want you to feel confident in light of Mark's ending, as we wrap up the Gospel of Mark. But it still begs the question, why did some guy, probably in the medieval period, right, some guy with too much time on his hands, uh, reading through the Bible, why did he tack on this extra section? Now, to be sure, if you read it, there's nothing heretical in it. Um, there's nothing that's kind of out of the ordinary. In fact, he probably just cut and pasted a lot of uh, what happened in the other Gospels to the end of Mark. So the, it's not problematic. It's just that Mark didn't write it. So why did he, why did this other guy add it on? Well, many people think it's because he didn't like the way the gospel of Mark ended. Uh, and so he was like, I think it needs a little bit more, right? Uh, look at verse eight. This is how Mark 16, verse eight, how it ends. And, and they went out, these ladies, and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That is the ending of the Gospel of Mark. And I suppose it's a little short, right? People read it, and they're like, why didn't Mark share more? So, I mean, so much more happened after the resurrection. And it does kind of end abruptly. But that's also kind of like Mark's style, as you know. He just kind of gets to the facts. He gets to, to the meat on the bone, and we see this actually from the start. You'll remember how Mark starts. It, it jumps right in with John the Baptist and Christ's ministry uh, kind of right away. He doesn't even talk about uh, Bethlehem or the, the manger scene or the wise men. And I think as we reflect on Mark as an author, uh, I want us to kind of put a little bit of a different kind of cap on as we think about ending Mark. As we think about Mark as an author, it's important to remember he has a specific aim in mind as he writes this telling and he wants to tell the story in a way with power and, and meaning. And he moves the ball forward uh, as efficiently as possible. And I, I do believe that Mark is meant to end at verse 8. I think it's right on brand, actually. Because all throughout the Gospel of Mark, what we see is the author, again, who is Peter, through the scribe Mark, uh, making much of the power of God. That's what we see over and over in Mark. That, that Jesus, God's son, is the powerful one. He is the one who the story is all about. And you see over and over again people's reactions to his power and his might. 
And some of the highlights that we've studied over the last year in Mark, people are filled oftentimes with great fear as Jesus calms the sea. This demon-possessed guy is delivered and the pigs throw themselves off of a cliff. This woman who is bleeding, coming with fear and trembling, the transfiguration, there's all these kind of power, like mic drop moments through the gospel of Mark. And Mark paints the people as witnesses to Jesus. They are constantly amazed and terrified. And he gets to the end of the book, and Jesus does the most miraculous thing. The Son of God rises from the grave. These women are blown away. They're totally freaked out. I can imagine Mark kind of saying, like, yeah, verse 8, that's awesome. They were terrified. They were astonished. Nothing beats seeing people blown away and amazed by God. And as we kind of finish up Mark, I want you just to lean into that this morning. That while the story is not as tidy as maybe other Gospels, what we're left with is, is the power of God at work. And how that, how that changes us, how that creates emotion in us, how that creates kind of reactions that would never happen otherwise. Now, the strange part, obviously, is it says they said nothing to anyone. Just to be clear, obviously, they, they do eventually. You see in the other gospel, the disciples show up in Galilee. Peter sees Jesus in, in person. Uh, Jesus ascends into heaven. What I think Mark is saying, though, in verse 8, is that these women were just in the presence of an angel. They're walking away. They're blown away. They're scared. They're overwhelmed. And maybe for a few hours, they don't say anything to anyone, right? They're completely freaked out. And so before we look down on them and say, well, why wouldn't they run out with that good news? I think there's many of us this morning who are sitting here saying that we love Jesus and we believe that he rose from the grave. And we haven't told anybody about that for months. It, it hasn't even crossed our mind. And I, I know why, right? Your, your employer hates Christians, so you can't bring that up. Or your family just shut you down at the dinner table and that's just uncomfortable I get it. There's lots of reasons why uh, our, our sharing our faith, our sharing what Christ has done is not comfortable or convenient for us. And sometimes we need time to process. I realize that. We go through something that's intense, a spiritual experience. God reveals himself in new ways, and, and we need some time to process. But eventually, they do speak up. And if you have come through these doors... And if you're convinced that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, that Mark 16 ends, and if you're in that same place where trembling and astonishment has seized you, this is a morning that we should celebrate, right? This is the best news that anybody in the world could ever hear. And if you've come through these doors and if you've been convinced like I have, I hope if nothing else, you, you might share that with someone. You might bring someone along and say, I... I, I wish that you would know the good news that I know, that he is not here, he is risen. And if you're here this morning and if you haven't convinced, I hope if nothing else, you might leave thinking that this story deserves some more investigating. Come back, ask questions. Our God can take the scrutiny. He, he has wide shoulders. And uh, maybe you'll be surprised, and just like Mark's audience, you too may find yourself blown away by the power of God. Um, that's, that's Mark. And, 
it, it feels good to be, be done in many ways. I was thinking about, was there something we could do to like, kind of celebrate that milestone? I just simply want to pray. I want to thank God for his word. Thank you for walking through um, our, our first book of the Bible together as a church. And I look forward to doing that many more times. Let's bow our heads together. God, we're grateful for uh, your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have um, you've revealed your will to us. You've given us direction. You've given us revelation, specifically about your son, through your word, through your servant, Mark. And so, God, we, we praise you, Lord, for um, the confidence that we have in, in who you are and your character, but also in, in how you've revealed yourself through Scripture. And, Lord, I pray that we would cling to that as believers, that you would develop and grow our faith. And, God, as, as we do sometimes um, enter in the seasons, seasons of being skeptical, uh, where our faith wanes, Lord, would you, um, would you meet us in those moments? Um, not to, to hurry our, our faithlessness away, Lord, but to just simply be with us and to uh, minister to us, Lord. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would do that. God, we are grateful to celebrate this morning, this, this Christmas season, uh, the end of the story, that, that you, you lived, you died, and you rose again. We're so grateful for that truth. I pray that it would change us all uh, fundamentally, Lord. We love you and praise these things in your name. Amen.